How's everybody doing? Are we awake? Yeah? All right. Fathers, happy Father's Day. Welcome. We're glad you're here. And uh, I'm going to tell you something that you already know, and you don't need me to tell you, um, but I'm going to say it anyway because this is going to be fun. Uh, fathers, you all know this, that you guys put up with a lot. Is that true? Yes? Wow, it's really quiet this morning. You guys put up with a lot. You put up with a lot. My dad especially put up with a lot, and that was because of me. So to start off, uh, I just want to show you this picture, and this is a picture of the first lawnmower that I learned how to cut the grass on. Now, you look at this, and you might think what I think, and this is just a beauty, right? This is like, it's an R72, or this one's an R68, so it's even older. Um, but the next one, you know, it looks like this. I mean, just, this is kind of more stereotypical of what stuff looked like in my house. Like, it's held together by rope and duct tape and, you know, rubber bands and stuff like this. So I remember when I was young, growing up, I would cut the lawn on this thing, and, and this was like a looker. You know, like when people drive down the road, they kind of like slow down and they stop and they stare, and they're like, wow, this thing still runs. This is what I grew up, this is what my dad taught me. Um, we good, Brennan? This is what my dad taught me, or, or on what he taught me how to cut the grass. So anyway, a couple things changed over the years, and my dad has since upgraded his lawnmower. Okay, so it's no longer this, it's now this one, right? <laughs> Little bit of a difference. Do you feel the difference? So I got home, I was in college, and I came home for the summer one summer, and just visiting, and I walked into the pole barn, and I see this. I mean, just this beautiful, I mean, this, it's huge, it's a zero turn, it's got all the horsepower in the world. This thing could chop down a rainforest if you need to. So it's just massive, and I'm looking at my dad, and, you know, numbers are going through my head, like, I think you just spent more on this than my college. And uh, I was like, hey, can I drive it? You know, just like any, any son would, can I drive it? Can I get on it? And so he says, yeah, sure, you know, we, we need to cut the grass, let's do it. So he showed me a couple things, how to work it, and I, I've driven these before, I know what I'm doing. But uh, the thing that you have to know about our lawn, or our yard, is when we had the little lawnmower, we lived in a little house on a little property in central Illinois. Uh, when, we, when he got this one, we now live on four acres of, like, cornfield grass. So it's just grass everywhere. And we live in, like, Midland, Freeland area, if you guys know where that is. And so Midland has ditches that look like this because there, there's, like, farms and, you know, like, drainage. When it rains a lot, that water's got to go somewhere. So we have a ditch that looks a lot like this right by our house. You see where this is going? We have this beautiful ditch, right, just full of water. And so uh, I remember getting on that lawnmower, and I start going, and in less than 10 minutes, I mean, you could just tell, this is my dad's baby. Like, he loves this thing slightly more than me, I think, at that point. And so I get on it, and I start driving, and I head towards the ditch because you who cut grass, you guys know this, you got to get kind of close to cut the grass to get as close as you can because whatever you don't get, you got to go back and weed whack. So I get on it and I start driving and it, it's not a steering wheel, it's levers. And so as I'm driving, I'm, I'm going kind of slow, but I'm being careful, but I get that fat back tire as close to the edge as possible. Here's what happens that I didn't anticipate. It was slightly wet and that back tire started to spin and started to slope down, and I had about one second to make a decision, and my options were this. Um, slow down, stop, and then try to figure out and do, do something, or just gun it with everything in me and try to get out. What do you think I did? Of course, I was super smart, right? I gunned it with everything in it. And here's the thing, I didn't understand why the thing had a roll bar. Never understood until I'm in the ditch upside down and the roll bar saved my head. And I go, oh my, dad is gonna kill me. 
that was my first thought. So like I get out and I'm doing the check over. And I'm like, well, I'm only, I'm just a little muddy. I don't know why the engine stopped, probably because it was upside down. And so I walked over and I, I'm walking around the house. And unfortunate for me, there's only one person home and I need help. And so I walk over and I walk to the garage. And who do you think is in the garage? Totally unaware of what just happened. Good old dad. And I remember thinking in my head, I have two options here. I can sugarcoat it or I can just hit him right between the eyes. I'm just going straight for it. And I walked up and I said, Dad, I just put your brand new lawnmower in the ditch upside down. And he laughs at me and he goes, no, you didn't. And I said, look at my face right now. Do I look like I'm joking? And he starts, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, sure enough. We w pulled the van over. We hooked it up to his toe strap. We pulled it out. And uh, the thing burned oil for about 20 minutes, black smoke billowing everywhere. All was good, but it just illustrates the point that dads put up with a lot, don't they? This was just one of many stories of which I just tested my dad's patience or, or took advantage of some cool thing that I shouldn't have been playing with. Uh, but it kind of leads us in a little bit. It's a stretch, but it leads us into kind of what we're talking about today. Uh, if you've been with us or if you've tracked with us during the series, uh, we've been going through the life of David. So life of King David, we've been in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and just kind of tracking with this, this young boy, it starts out. David, he's just a little shepherd boy, and he's out in the fields, and he's watching the sheep and tending them and taking care of them. And a prophet comes, and he identifies David, and he says, you're going to be the next king. And so we see David start as a shepherd boy. He ends up uh, conquering Goliath, and he starts being this warrior. And Saul, the king, takes him in his service. And so David ends up having this amazing career. He was this fantastic warrior. He was a powerful leader. When Saul died, David takes over as king and just experienced some of the highest of highs that life could deliver. David was at the top of his game. He was at the top of his career. He was at the top of his personal life. And then last week, what we talked about is David blew it. He made a mistake that cost him everything. And the mistake involved a woman named Bathsheba. And so when David should have been on the front lines with his army, he should have been fighting with his men. Instead, he kind of he takes the easy way out. And he hangs back, and he stays at the palace, and he exposes himself to temptation. And he has a split second to make a decision, and he makes the wrong one. And he, he not only commits adultery, but he also has Bathsheba's husband murdered. And so Nathan, the prophet Nathan, comes to David. And after exposing David's sin to him, saying, I know and all the people will know. Here's what Nathan says. He says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Nathan saying, David, you blew it, and you tried to cover it up, and you tried to hide it, and I'm just going to let you know that the storm is coming. It doesn't say this is going to ruin him. It doesn't say this is going to cost him his life because David repented, but it does say the storm's coming. Embrace yourself. And just to acknowledge something, too, it talks about multiple wives here. Um, way back when, in the course of history, and particularly in this story, 
a lot of times kings would have multiple wives for very political reason. It wouldn't be like a, a wife like we would have today or a husband like we would have today, but it would be more of like a treaty, whereas like a, a nation would make a treaty with another nation. Often the king's daughter would be married to the other king, and that would set up a sort of truce. So David had multiple wives, but what this is saying or what Nathan is saying um, is when a king would conquer another king, he would often take the wives up to the roof t- rooftop and sleep with them, and it would be kind of like this public display of, I have conquered this place. And so it's kind of gruesome, and it's kind of graphic, and yet it's in Scripture. And Nathan says, David, this is going to cost you. The storm is coming. So a couple things are going to happen that we're just going to kind of dive through together. There's three main sections here um, of like this calamity that happens. I'm just going to walk us through it as best as we can here. So the first, David has three kids that we're going to focus on today. First one is Absalom. The second one is Amnon. And the third one is Tamar. And so here's what happens. We're just going to read scripture here together. Starting 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar. So this is like his half-sister, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. You see this kind of heading a bad direction, right? You don't need a whole lot of foresight or biblical knowledge to understand this is going in a direction that's not going to be good, not going to be healthy. So brace yourself. Here's what happens. He comes up with a plan. He's like, okay, I'm going to fake an illness, and I'm going to have my sister, my half-sister, come and take care of me, and then I'm going to see where this goes. So here's what happens, 2 Samuel 13, verse 11. But when she took him to him to eat, so she made bread for him. When she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. That's gross. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. Then the next verse says this, but he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. This is in the Bible. This is what happens. David, back up again, David made a decision, and God said, there's a storm coming, there's calamity coming to your household, coming to your family, and this was the first of a series of events that would take place. But here's the important piece I want you to see here in David, or what David doesn't do, and that's this next verse. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. And every dad in the room, or every parent in the room, or just everyone in the room would agree it's wrong and it's right to be furious. But here's what David doesn't do that's so important to point out. David doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't get Amnon in front of him. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't reach out. It just says David is furious, and the story moves on. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So uh, oftentimes we can't control the events that happen in our lives or in our families, or we can't control the storm that comes, but what we can control is our reaction to it. And in this case, David's reaction is this. I'm hands off. I'm not going to engage. 
I'm not going to move in. Uh, this is too messy. It's one son, and now another son's really mad, and so they're not talking. And then my, my daughter, she's not talking to anybody. She's hurt. She's disgraced kind of to the community. And so, so there's this, this issue and this kind of explosive event that happens in the life of David. And David, and this is what's so ironic, the king, the ruler, the leader does nothing. So let's see what happens. This is part two. Absalom fled, um, and the reason Absalom fled here, this is 2 Samuel 13, is because Absalom came up with this plan or this idea to invite all of the brothers out together, and when all of them were out, they said, hey, let's get Amnon drunk. Let's just get him drunk. Let's fill him with wine. Let's fill him with alcohol, whatever. And so Amnon gets drunk, and David yells out to all of his brothers, kill him. And they strike him down. And so this is what it says. Absalom fled after he struck down his brother and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, I think, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. Just highlight that for one second. King David mourned. But he didn't do anything. He was sad. He was devastated because now not only does he have the, the, the explosive situation with his daughter and Amnon, but now he's burying Amnon. Let's keep going. Let's see how this plays out. So Absalom fled. He disappears, and he stays there three years in which David and Absalom have zero contact. David, again, kind of pulls back, kind of quits, kind of throws in the towel. And for three years, nothing is resolved. Well, here's what happens with Absalom. Absalom now starts thinking, and maybe he's looking at dad, or maybe he's just looking at the kingdom and the opportunity here. But Absalom says, there's an opportunity for me to step up and for me to take the throne. And so I'm going to go right outside the city gate. And as people are coming in to go see my dad, to go see the king, I'm going to start talking to them. And I'm going to start kind of working inside without David realizing it. I'm going to win the hearts of the people. I'm going to build relationships with them. I'm going to get their support to make me king. And so David finds out about it, that Absalom is attempting to overthrow the entire kingdom. And this is what happens. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, and then say this word with me, we must flee. We must run. We must hide. We must avoid. It's like tuck tail and disappear. So we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. This is just the question I want to ask. What happened? What happened to David? You know, just, just like we said, David just had one of the most unbelievable reigns in history. He had this amazing career. He was this top-of-the-line warrior, king, leader, fighter. I mean, it, David was the man. And now when, when you look at his family and David blows it and he makes a decision and he sins against God, he sins against Bathsheba, he sins against her husband, and he sins against the entire nation, David chooses to quit. And he kind of pulls the white surrender flag out of his pocket and he throws it out and he watches his family implode right in front of him. He watches his daughter, he watches his son, he watches his other son, and this is what he, he's left with. I think just by my 
you know, tallying up the years, I think it's like five years of David's family just exploding. And David goes, hands off. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not involved. I'm not engaged. I, I just, I'm running from the pain that is happening in my family right now. And I just want to ask, well, why? Why would he do that? And this is the thing, too. This, this is kind of the focus of today is this passivity runs from pain. So this was something David was just leading out of. Instead of being active and engaged and, and powerful in his interactions like he has in the past and the way he led a nation and an army and his family, David instead says, passivity is the way to go because there's pain going on right here and it's painful for me to engage with my kids. It's painful for me to bring up my sin in the midst of their sin. It's painful for me to step into a broken situation. It's painful for me to bury my son. It's painful for me to fight the other one who's trying to take over. It's painful, so instead of engaging in the pain, I'm going to flee from the pain. David checks out. He lets his failure define him. He lets his sin cripple him. And his, in his attempt to avoid pain, he actually causes more. This is where, it's just crazy. Maybe you've heard this statement before. Um, The problem is no longer the problem. The problem has now become David. And so we can't control these events that happen in our lives. We can't control the storms. And yet what we can control is our reaction to them, how we move towards them, how we engage with them. And so David chooses passivity. He runs from the pain and he says, I'm not engaged. I don't want anything to do with it. And the destruction just continues to multiply and multiply, and multiply. So as we just think, I mean, how how many times uh, is it true that the problem is no longer the problem, or as we look at our own lives or our own families, um, can you identify a source of pain or brokenness in your family? You know, Father's Day, uh, I'm excited about Father's Day. Um, Something fun, just to tell you, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I will. Um, Shannon and I are pregnant. I don't know if I told you guys that. Yeah? So that's exciting. We're pumped about that. We have a baby coming in November, um, but so this Father's Day is really fun for me. This is really exciting, you know, because I, I get to be a dad this November and can't wait, super excited. But here's what I also know is that Father's Day brings up a lot of emotions that aren't positive, you know, because a lot of us have broken relationships with our dad or broken relationships with grandpa or broken relationships uh, because someone's not there anymore or broken relationships because of our kids. Father's Day is just a unique holiday um, where a whole breadth of emotions tend to come and to fill our hearts. And I just know in this room, you know, with this many people, it's just fair to say that some are, are stoked and amped that it's Father's Day, and others are just disappointed and wanting this day to get past and get through and to move on as fast as possible. Um, one of them is my wife's dad. Um, even just last night, you know, we were laying in bed, and she said, I always feel it for my dad on Father's Day. And it just, for some reason, it just didn't cross my mind, but I went, oh, yeah, because her dad lost his dad around our age when he was younger. And so, you know, he's been gone now for 20-some years. But, you know, so Father's Day, some, some of us love Father's Day and exciting, and it's emotional. We just, it's like the best day ever, and others of us, it's like, just get through, just don't look at anybody, don't look anything, don't, don't notice anything, just, just plow through. So on Father's Day, this is just where I want to ask, as we look at our lives, or as we look at our relationships, or we look at our families, is there a point of pain, or is there an event in our lives or in our past that, that caused some sort of pain, but that the problem that was originally the problem is no longer the problem? 
Is there something like that? So I want to share just a little bit. My, um, my family has a close family friend, or, or kind of, I don't know how you say that. We have a family that's close to our family, but that's not our family. And uh, our family um, has kind of just been walking through this family or walking with this family for a little bit of time. And let me just set this up. There's a 90-some-year-old great-grandma, and great-grandma is getting towards the end of her life. She's kind of lost the ability to take care of herself. And so <laughs> she has nine kids. Okay, you follow me, Really quick. Nine kids. Imagine that. And they're all like my grandparents' age. So nine kids with a grandma who's about 90 or mom who's about 90. And here's the thing. This was the problem. The, the decision was where do we put grandma? Do we have her live in somebody's home? Do we put her in a nursing home? Does she live independently and we have somebody come in and take care? So th this was the topic of conversation. And maybe some of you have had similar types of conversations. Long story short, one of the family members came in, so one of the kids, and said, Mom, I'm going to move you out. And another kid showed up, one of the nine, and said, Mom, you need to stay here. The two have a fight. One of them decks the other one. Cops are called. One walks away in handcuffs. Great grandma's sitting there like, I don't even know what's going on, but he's in a cop car and she's mad and this and that. So this whole explosion happened in this family. And so Shannon and I are watching, and this is what happened with this family. Over the course of a year and a half, all nine of those siblings took sides. Either there's this side where one was right and the other one was wrong, or you flip it around and this one was right and this one was wrong. And the two, instead of being one family, became two families that warred with each other. And over time, because the conflict wasn't addressed, because passivity was chosen, because pain was involved, that, that so many people ran from pain that they can't keep track of who they're mad at anymore. Can you relate to this at all, maybe in your family? You don't remember whose team you're on because it's so interconnected and you can't remember, should I call them because I need to find out if they need to know about this and if they're mad at me. And So it's this entire spider web of anger and hatred and bitterness. And Shannon and I are just watching and our family's been walking with them and they go, we don't know who's mad at who anymore, but all we know is nobody's talking to anybody. And you just see this family, and just from the outside, from a third-party perspective, this is what you would want, or this is what I would want, is this. One person to take the initiative to sit down with the injured parties and say, I'm sorry. Let me just own this. This is an issue that we need to talk about to start bringing restoration to a family because of how many hundreds of people have been affected. Nine kids multiplied by rabbits, you know, it just explodes. So... <laughs> You just think about this. I look at the life of David, right? Amen. Is that the first amen I got today? Thank you for that. You just look at the life of David. And I just want to ask this question. Um, what would David kids want from their dad? What do they wish he would do? How do they wish he would respond? You know, Shannon and I look at this family. Here's, here's what we would wish for them is someone to take the initiative to step into the pain and to identify it and live there and work to restore it and work to rebuild it and work to strengthen it. And what David's kids are begging for is dad to take an interest, for dad to care. But it's not just them that are, that are affected. Um, so as we look at that, what do we want? What do his kid wants? What do his kids want? What about his people? What about the people who David has been entrusted to lead? What do they want to see their king do with his family? And what about God? 
What would God want from the king of a nation to do with his family who's broken and hurting and crippled? This is why I ask so many of us have situations like this in which our natural bend is to say nothing, to do nothing, to accept the, to accept the outcome and flee. And it's so easy to keep it at bay because passivity always runs from pain. And this is what stinks about this, this story. This seems like a downer sermon. But as we look at the life of David, David had some of the highest highs imaginable. And where David ends his life is at a low. That he actually maintains this, this kind of posture of checking out for the rest of his life. That I, I looked, I read chapter after chapter after chapter, trying to finish up the life of David, looking for one instance, one case where David turns it around and he steps into his family and he steps in and he starts making things right. What ends up happening is he loses both of his boys and his daughter remains unmarried. His family's just disgraced and the pain that is brought and the lasting consequences, but David never steps back in. And so to look for a story of redemption in the life of David, we just don't see it in this situation. David just maintains checked out. But to switch to a different story as we look at uh, something else kind of playing out the same way, uh, Genesis chapter 3. So a lot of you are familiar with Adam and Eve. Right? Adam and Eve, Genesis. Uh, there's a serpent that's in the tree. And so Adam and Eve are talking to the serpent. And the, God had made it so absolutely clear. Do not touch the fruit. This is forbidden fruit. Don't touch it. Stay away from it. And so the, ter- the serpent is tempting them and talking to them and looking like, look at it. It just looks so good and so delicious and beautiful. And your eyes will be opened and you can see. And Adam, this is the most important thing that we can hear today. Adam is standing by his wife, and the serpent's interaction. And I heard this uh, when I first started seminary. uh, They brought up Genesis 3, and they they said this, like the professors. They said Adam's sin wasn't so much the action that he took in eating the apple, but Adam's sin was the passivity he chose in response to it. That while Eve, his wife, and the serpent were having an interaction, it says, and Adam was standing right with her. And said nothing and did nothing and watched his wife eat the fruit and she handed it to him and he ate the fruit and a whole realm of consequences entered into humanity's relationship with God. And here's the important part. Right at the end, Adam and Eve, their eyes are opened and they hide. They find the bush or they find trees or they find shrubs or whatever it is. They find it and they hide and they hide hide who they are because they're naked. They hide from God. And this is where it's different. God is caught walking through the garden. And as he's walking through, he's yelling out, Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And he keeps walking and he keeps looking. And finally, they muster up the courage and they say, here I am. We hid from you because we were naked. And God looks and he says, who told you that you were naked? And their sin comes out and they say, we ate from the tree. And there's a whole realm of consequences that come in as a result. But here's the the most important part again today is that God never stops pursuing Adam and Eve. 
That as he looks through the garden, he finds them and he identifies them and he calls after them. And in, in the midst of their pain and brokenness, God continues to move in their direction. And it doesn't stop at the end of the story. Because now that sin has come in and sin is broken throughout the rest of history, God continues to pursue Adam and Eve. Because passivity runs from pain, but love on the other side always runs toward pain. That God's approach to people and God's approach to humanity and God's approach to Adam and Eve and God's approach to you and me is always to move in the direction of our pain. And so Father's Day, like we talked about, Father's Day brings up so many emotions. A lot of those emotions are pain. That whether we identify them or not, whether we stuff them, whether we deal with them, that pain comes up. And so God says, I live in your pain. That I move in the direction of of your pain. So this is a cool um, story here. How many of you have heard of Derek Redmond before? If I say the name Derek Redmond, I'm going to start telling you the story and then you'll understand who it is or maybe you'll remember. 1992 Barcelona Olympics, Derek Redmond is a sprinter. He's a runner. And his career was riddled with injury, riddled with pain. I mean, just it didn't matter what it was. He kept getting hurt. He kept getting injured. And so four months before the Barcelona Olympics, four months before, he actually had surgery on his Achilles tendon. So major surgery, but he's coming out. He's like to the world stage. We're going to have a couple pictures just to walk him through. 150 yards into the race. This is the race of his life. He had just set a record. 150 yards into the race, he rips his hamstring. And so he's mid-stride and it rips and he says he heard a loud pop and he felt a huge surge of pain. And his response was, I thought I got shot. And so you see him kind of just drop down and he's on the ground and he's clutching his leg and clutching it. And just in the midst, in the center of the most broken pain that he feels, he looks up and he sees the runners complete and he says, I'm in the Olympics. I need to finish. And so he gets up and he starts hobbling and he starts hopping and walking and just amidst the pain as he's going through on a world stage watched by millions and millions of people. There's one guy who from the stands runs down, jumps the gate, pushes through security, and puts his arm around him. And he says, back off, this is my son. And it's this next photo here that just highlights the midst, the center, the point of Derek's pain. And the one person who didn't stay passive, who didn't stay disengaged, who didn't watch from a distance, who didn't look at the jumbo screen and say, wow, I wish he's doing okay. The one person who pursued him like crazy was his dad. And his dad hugged him and put his, his arm around him and he whispered this to him. He said, Derek, you have nothing to prove. You don't have to finish this. And he said, dad, I want to finish. It matters to me. And together, arm in arm, they hobbled all the way to the end with a standing ovation by everyone watching, just mesmerized by the love that the father showed his son. God is that father. That in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our brokenness, 
in the midst of our sadness, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be our pain, it doesn't have to be caused by us, but just the pain that exists that is unavoidable in life. That can be cancer. That can be a broken relationship. That can be drugs. That can be alcohol. That can be a dispute. Heck, it can be an election. Brokenness exists so deeply inside of us and in our relationships. And we know that this brings up, especially Father's Day, that it brings up the heart or the center of that pain. But what I want you to hear is this. God lives in your pain. That he is right there. He moves towards you. He runs towards you. He puts his arm around you and he lives in that pain. And dads, this is my challenge to you even today too. God wants you to lead like he does. God wants you to love like he does. And so as you look at your pain today, or as you look at your family or the emotions that come up, I did this earlier this week. There's a broken relationship in my immediate family. Um, someone who's very close and yet very far from me. And I had to own a lot of stuff and I got my phone out and I shot her a quick text and I said, I, I haven't done this well, but I just want to own this because I know it hurt you. And I'm sorry. And I just moved in the direction of her pain. And it's hard. And it's messy. And it, it's, I mean, it's difficult for me to even own stuff where I, it's not mine own and it's not fair. And yet I look at this and I look at my relationship with God. And God always moves towards my pain. And God calls us to do the same in the lives and relationships with others. So today and Father's Day as we're going to see family members, as we're going to see friends, coworkers, whatever it is, whoever it is you're going to see, my challenge to you is this, whether you're a dad or a mom or a son or daughter or grandparent or anything in the middle, my challenge to you is this, move in the direction of the pain. Run to the pain because restoration exists if we can move towards it. Would you pray with me? God, we just come before you today and just thank you for stories in the Bible that we can relate in the highs and highlights of life. We also thank you for stories that we can relate in the lowlights and the things that are really hard and the things that are difficult. And on Father's Day, especially, Father, some of these things are um, closer to our hearts or closer to our emotions than others. And some, uh, maybe this doesn't feel like it, it totally exists because there isn't a storm in our lives right now. There isn't pain. But Father, we just know based on life experience that storms come and storms go. And we just pray that we would be your people, that we would respond in the way that you want us to, just the way that you do. Some of us today, Father, I just pray that you move into our hearts and that we allow you to come into the center of our pain. Others of us just invite you, Father, to follow your lead as you lead us to step into the pain of other people in our lives. And Father, just as followers of you and as children of you, I just pray that we would have the courage and the boldness to lead others towards moving towards the pain. That's where you bring hope. That's where you bring peace. That's where you bring joy. That's where you bring restoration. That's where you bring redemption. Father, we just pray for that. We pray that today would be an important Father's Day in the lives of our family. And we also pray that this would be an important day to celebrate you, our Heavenly Father. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.